verses 13 through 34 as a, a sort of sample of many similar passages in Luke's gospel. We won't spend all or, or even uh, much of our time on this one, but we read it as uh, part of a larger theme in Luke, in chapter 12, verses 13 through 34. Jesus was teaching someone in the crowd, said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, Be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you were not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies. Uh, they grow, they neither toil nor spend, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We'll uh, read also from Otterberg Catechism. Words Day uh, 42, in the Eighth Commandment, page 892 in the back of your hymnals. We'll read questions 110 and 111 responsively in connection with uh, those words of Christ that we just read about money and covetousness and generosity. Question 110, what does God forbid in the eighth commandment? 
He forbids not only outright theft and robbery, which governing authorities punish, but in God's sight, theft also includes all evil tricks and schemes designed to get our neighbor's goods for ourselves, whether by force or means that appear legitimate, such as inaccurate measurements of weight, size, or volume, fraudulent merchandising, counterfeit money, excessive interest, or any other means forbidden by God. In addition, God forbids all greed and pointless squandering of his gifts. Then question 111, what does God require of you in this commandment? That I do whatever I can and may for my neighbor's good, that I treat others as I would like them to treat me, and that I work faithfully so that I may help the needy in their hardship. Congregation, last Sunday we looked at the seventh commandment sort of thematically throughout Matthew's gospel. I'm focusing not just on one or two passages, but on the whole of of the gospel and what Christ had to say in it about sexuality, about the way that we use our bodies and conduct ourselves, whether in or outside the holy state of marriage. We saw that there are certainly things that Christ condemns or forbids, but that he also comes to save us from those things so that we can serve him with our bodies. This afternoon, I want to do something similar with um, Luke's gospel and the Eighth Commandment. And much like we did last week, survey the, the whole gospel to see what it is that Christ forbids, uh, namely greed, covetousness, love for money, and theft, but also how he saves us from those so that we can serve him with our money. And just like our, our sexuality, money is not bad but there are certain dangers that it presents of which we need to be warned and from which we need to be saved so that we can use our money rightly to serve God. So let's look at Luke's gospel and see what it is that Christ has to say about money. Well, the gospels, um, this is the one that, that focuses the most on some of these economic concerns that Luke repeatedly brings up from the very beginning in Luke chapter one and those, those nativity scenes, you have all of these, these songs that come up and, and Mary in, in her Magnificat, she, she talks in it about how God will exalt the poor and he will send the rich away empty. It's the beginning of this sort of curious theme. Um, several chapters later, Luke will, will present the Beatitudes, the same ones from, from Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount in a, a sort of shortened form that focuses not on, on spiritual poverty or spiritual hunger, but, but literal hunger and literal poverty, with the corresponding woes for those who are full and those who are rich. Luke will include material from John the Baptist that is not included in the other Gospels about how his, his call to repentance affects the way that soldiers and, and tax collectors, in fact, all men, use their money. There are parables in Luke that no other Gospel writer includes about money and the rich and the poor. And so it's fair to say that if there is any Gospel that, that speaks specifically to these issues related to money and the Eighth Commandment, it's Luke. Which is why if you look 
at the proof text for question 110 in our, our catechism, if you still have that open, uh, Luke is cited four times. He has a lot to say about money and theft and greed and, and covetousness. And so look with me first at these various warnings that Luke gives about greed. Well, I'll start in chapter 3. As I said, John is preaching a baptism of repentance. He's, he's calling the people to turn away from their sin and to prepare themselves for God's coming. And when they say in verse 10 of Luke chapter 3, in, in response, what then shall we do? It's interesting that Luke's answer focuses on material goods. He says, whoever has two tunics should share with him who has none. Whoever has food should do likewise. And then the tax collectors come up and they, they say, well, what, what about us? He says, collect no more than you were authorized to. And then the soldiers ask the same. And he says, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, but be content with your wages. Here, as in question 110, God, through his prophet, condemns outright theft and robbery, any evil schemes to take our, our neighbor's goods by force or by means that appear legitimate, and calls us not to greed, but to be content, even sharing with those in need. Luke's emphasis on this continues in, in chapter 6, where Christ pronounces a blessing on the poor and the hungry, verses 20 and 21. And then a woe or a curse on the rich, verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation, and woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. And this recalls what Mary already said in Luke 153, that God would, would fill the hungry with good things, but the rich he would send away empty. Which is not to say that there's something intrinsically good about being poor or bad about having money. That the curse that Christ pronounces is not inevitable, nor the blessing. But they forecast what will happen to the one who is characterized by love for money and does not repent. He will enjoy what he has in this life, but it may keep him from joy in the life to come. As Christ says in Luke 8, 14, the parable of the sower, that oftentimes the riches and pleasures of this life choke out the word. And Christ's blessings and woes are, are hinting at that. Which he then states quite clearly in that passage that we read from Luke chapter 12, where Jesus says that we must be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. But he warns us against storing up for ourselves treasures and, and goods and security in this life, but not being rich toward God, allowing our preoccupation with money and, and worldly goods to cause us to forget about our souls. And Jesus says in verse 20 of Luke chapter 12, you fool, this night your soul is required of you and, and the things that you have prepared, all of these things that you've spent your whole life gathering up, whose will they be? And so he says, don't, be, or don't, don't lay up treasure for yourselves on earth, but be rich towards God. It's interesting, I, I think that one of the, the keys there is that, that uh, little phrase, for yourselves. If you look at, at Luke 12, that, that little parable that we read of the rich fool in verses 17 to 19, there's uh, something like 10 or so self-references. He's constantly saying, me, myself, I. All he's thinking about as he's storing all of these things up is, is himself. 
And so Jesus says, no, do not, do not store up treasure for yourselves on earth, but be rich towards God. Don't focus. He goes on to say in verses 22 to 30 on food and clothes and, and money, but seek first God's kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy, he says in verse 33, and thereby store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Christ gives a very stern warning about the greed that Lord's Day 42 condemns. In fact, Luke 12 is is cited when our, our catechism says that God forbids all greed. Luke has a lot to say about this, which he continues in in chapter 16, where Jesus, again, in verse 16 says, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and serve the other, or he will be be devoted to the one and, and despise the other, but you cannot serve both God and money. Again, he, he calls us away from a greedy preoccupation with worldly wealth. Actually, that same passage calls us uh, not to do what the last part of question 110 says, to pointlessly squander the good gifts that God entrusts to us. In Luke 16 there, it's what the the, um, unjust steward in in the parable has has just done in verses 1 through 9. He's pointlessly squandered the good gifts that have been entrusted to him, leading Jesus to say in verses 10 through 12 that we mustn't be unfaithful with the good gifts that our master entrusts to us. And so Jesus is, is saying that we should neither love money nor should we waste it, but we should use it to serve God and neighbor or to, to use the, the language from several or a few chapters earlier, we, we should use it to be rich towards God. We use it not to serve ourselves, but to serve God and neighbor, which is the same thing that Christ tells the rich young ruler in Luke 18. He says in verse 22 to this man who thinks that he has kept all of God's commandments, Jesus says, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The one thing that was prohibiting this man from entering the kingdom, the one thing that, that was hindering him from following Jesus was his love for money. For which reason, Jesus says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Which he actually gave another picture of in in Luke 16 in the story of the rich man and Lazarus whose, whose fortunes are reversed in the age to come. Over and over, he's warning of the dangers of worldly wealth and condemning the greed and love for money that Lord's Day 42 speaks of. He cannot make the point enough times that greed kills. Which he gives one more picture at the end of Luke 20. He's warning about the scribes and the Pharisees leading into the, the, the covenant curse of the temple's destruction in chapter 21. But in verse 47 of Luke 20, he says that one of the things that, that will bring this judgment upon them is their devouring widows' houses. The scribes and Pharisees using their religious office to wrest from the hands of poor widows their very livelihood, which Jesus then gives a picture in the next verse where a poor widow puts in the last of her livelihood into the temple treasury. 
which, yes, is a positive example of costly generosity, but it's interesting that this woman who, verse 4 says, has now given all that she had to live on is presented just one verse after the religious leaders are said to be devouring widows' houses, taking advantage of the weak, exploiting them, putting them into poverty by pressuring them to give for religious reasons. This kind of thing still happens. I've seen prosperity preachers who strategically prey on the poor, planting themselves in the most economically depressed neighborhoods, promising that that tithing will will be a sort of of get-out-of-debt-free card to those uh, to whom they preach. And becoming rich off the backs of those who dig themselves further and further into poverty. That's what this is, the end of Luke 20. And it qualifies as as tricks and schemes designed to get our neighbors good, whether by force or by means that appear legitimate, even religious means. Christ is warning all throughout Luke's gospel of, of the many ways that we break the Eighth Commandment by outright theft and robbery, by evil tricks and schemes, by taking advantage of the weak, by greed and pointless squandering of God's gifts, warning us that our love for money condemns us before God. For no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. But you cannot serve both God and money. Luke really wants to make sure that we get that. And yet even as he warns us of the dangers of greed, he also gives us several pictures of the power of God's grace to overcome that greed. That's what I want to turn to next. Even as Christ rebukes our greed, he also redeems us by his grace. I'll give you just three little snapshots of that from throughout Luke's gospel. Luke chapter five, as Christ is, is beginning to call his disciples, we mentioned this passage last week, Matthew or, or Levi is called from his tax booth in verse 27, and it says that he leaves everything to follow Jesus. Now, Levi is a tax collector known for their greed, not well thought of by others. We see in verse 30 the kind of company that he keeps. But Christ comes, verse 32, to save him. Even as Luke's gospel condemns the greed for which tax collectors were well known, he's at the same time making clear that such sinners were not beyond the reach of God's grace. I've not come to call the righteous, Jesus says, but sinners to repentance even those who break the Eighth Commandment. Last week, we we saw that that Jesus in this passage in Luke 5, or Matthew's uh, parallel of it in Matthew 9, is is, is saving sexual sinners who break the Seventh Commandment. But here we see also the Eighth. Tax collectors like Levi. The great physician has come even to cure them of their love for money that is everywhere condemned throughout Luke's Gospel. Christ saves also from this which we see another picture of in Luke 19. Right after Jesus has said in Luke 18 how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, or verse 27 actually says impossible. Yet right after that, Jesus says what's impossible with man is possible with God and then gives us a picture of God doing the impossible as we meet a a tax collector named Zacchaeus just a few verses later who was in fact a chief tax collector. 
Verse 2 tells us, verse 2 of, of, of Luke 19, that he was rich. That's the same word that was just used to describe the rich young ruler in Luke 18. But this rich tax collector, known by all as a sinner, verse 7, becomes the object of salvation. Verse 9, today, Zacchaeus, salvation has come to this house, for you also are a son of Abraham, Jesus says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Lost tax collectors like Zacchaeus, whose salvation is humanly impossible, but God does what is impossible with man. Luke wants to make sure we understand that just because God condemns the greedy does not mean that the greedy are beyond the scope of his grace. Just as, as Matthew did with, with prostitutes, Luke does the same here with tax collectors, with, with the greedy. See another one of those uh, tax collectors actually in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Here, especially in Zacchaeus in Luke 19, we see this beautiful picture of of what um, Dale Ralph Davis says here. Rich Zacchaeus slithers through the eye of a needle into the kingdom. He does what Luke 18 said was humanly impossible. And then Zacchaeus evidences the, the grace of God in his life by doing what John the Baptist called the tax collectors to do in Luke chapter 3 and what Christ just called the rich young ruler to do in Luke 18. He gives what he has to the poor and he restores what he's stolen. Not that this merits Christ's grace, but it shows that the grace of of the one who comes to seek and to save the lost has overcome Zacchaeus' love for money and by the expulsive power of a new and greater affection, what once prevented Zacchaeus from entering the kingdom has now lost its allure. Christ has done the impossible. In this story, we, we behold the grace of God even saving greedy thieves and tax collectors, of which we're given one more picture towards the very end of Luke's gospel, in Luke 23, where Jesus hangs between two thieves on the cross who were put to death with him. And one of them, in verse 41, confesses that Christ is the righteous one, and Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise. Another camel passes through the eye of a needle, and this one at the 11th hour. Once again, God does the impossible, and his grace overcomes a greedy heart. Luke is showing us that even though God forbids greed and theft of every kind, and these things render us unfit for the kingdom, yet the grace of Jesus is greater than our sin, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. As Ryle says of of Zacchaeus, he transforms a covetous tax gatherer into a liberal or, or generous Christian. Again, showing us that that all of those statements Luke makes about the rich being sent away empty and those who are full now being hungry in the age to come does not mean that the rich are automatically excluded from the kingdom. But they can use their money for Christ's sake, doing what question 111 says, treating others as they would like to be treated and helping the needy in their hardship. Luke um, gives us also several pictures of this. It's our, our last point as we move from greed to grace now to generosity, I mentioned in uh, chapter 5, Levi, who after Christ comes and, and calls him away from his tax booth to follow Jesus, uses his resources and his wealth to hold a banquet in Christ's honor. 
He uses the wealth that he has to, to extend hospitality. He, he holds a banquet in Christ's honor at which he hosts sinners and those who are spiritually sick so that they might come and meet the great physician. He shows us here that wealth can be leveraged for the sake of the kingdom. It can be used to extend hospitality, in particular to those who are outsiders, that they might by grace become insiders and meet the great physician and be saved. Or just a couple chapters after this, we see in Luke chapter 8 that wealth can also be leveraged for the sake of the kingdom in supporting the gospel ministry. As in Luke 8 verse 1, as Jesus is, is going through the cities and the villages proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God with the 12, it says that they did this, verse 3, with the financial support of women of means. Uh, women like the um, uh, wife of Herod's household manager even, who shows us uh, again that, that while the rich do face great dangers that can prevent them from the kingdom, they can, can also be a means for the extension of the kingdom as they use their wealth to be hospitable toward outsiders, to, to support the preaching of the gospel. In Zacchaeus' case, by helping the needy in their hardship, by giving uh, half of all he has to the poor. And then at the very end of the gospel, we see yet another picture of someone using their wealth for kingdom purposes in Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man who buries Jesus in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. He uses his wealth to honor the Messiah. And actually, at the very beginning of the gospel, I think we have another picture of this in the most excellent Theophilus, to whom this letter, along with the book of Acts, is addressed. And that title, most excellent one, is, is given in the book of Acts to, to Roman officials and magistrates, suggesting this is a person of, of importance, a person of means. Meaning that the one to whom this book is written is someone of financial means, who actually many think that uh, may have been the, the patron whose financial support allowed the writing of this book along with, with the book of Acts. Another example of someone using his resources for the, the furtherance of the gospel so that not only he, Luke 1 verse 4, but, but others also might have that certainty which Luke longs to give him concerning the things they have been taught. That's what Luke says is the express purpose of, of the writing of this gospel. And, and, and the one to whom he, he writes it, it's, it's addressed, the one who many think supported this endeavor, Luke is seeking to give not only him but us also certainty, assurance concerning the things that have been fulfilled. And not only Theophilus, but also Luke was a man of means. He was a, a doctor whose writing shows that he was well-educated, well-traveled, well-connected, and yet uses his means also to write an orderly account for the sake of the gospel. And so as, as Kevin DeYoung uh, sort of summarizes, uh, Luke was not a, a poor man writing to another poor man so that together they might denounce the rich. This is not the, the sort of liberation theology that, that you hear some people speak of as if there's something intrinsically bad about having wealth and intrinsically good about being poor. Young says it's much closer to the truth to say that Luke was a rich man writing to another rich man and people like him in order to show how the rich might truly follow Jesus. 
where, yes, they face unique dangers and can be callous toward others, haughty, proud, cheats, swindlers, wrongly confident in themselves and foolishly trusting in their wealth. And if that is the case, they're in for a rude awakening in the age to come. They can also be faithful with their wealth, helping the poor, supporting the gospel ministry, being hospitable toward others, and working faithfully, question 111, to help the needy in their hardship. And so as we think about Jesus and money, he wants to warn us of the dangers of worldly wealth and greed, but also wants to show us the ways that we can use what we have been given for the sake of the kingdom. Working hard to give back to the one who has been so gracious towards us. As we'll sing in a moment from number 324, the one who was rich beyond all splendor, yet all for love's sake became as poor. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. God wants us to see the grace of of Jesus in saving poor men, poor rich men like Zacchaeus, becoming poor for their sakes and dying for their sins so that we might become rich towards God in righteousness. So that in response to what he's done, we would repent of our greedy love for money and our use, uh, use our money instead for the sake of the kingdom. That's what Luke is, is, is trying to help us to do. He, he wants us to see the grace of Jesus in saving poor rich men like Zacchaeus or, or Levi. How Jesus does this by becoming poor for our sakes and dying for our sins. To make us rich towards God in righteousness so that in response to all that Christ has done. We would repent of our greedy love for money and we would use our money instead for the sake of the kingdom the way that those women in Luke 8 did, the way that Levi did, the way that Joseph of Arimathea or Theophilus or Luke did. We would use the means that he has given to us for the sake of the kingdom of the one who has been so gracious to us. And now in response, we use our means to give for his sake. Again, as as we'll even do in a moment in our offering. As an aspect of worship in in response to the gospel and as a regular weekly declaration that money is not our God, but Christ is. May he use even this regular act of worship to train us to be eighth commandment keeping, greed denying recipients of his grace who give back generously because of what he's given to us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that our hearts, which are prone to wander and our idol-making factories, are tempted by greed and covetousness and even theft in ways that, that we seek to justify. We need your grace to rescue us from this greedy idolatry and to save us from the deadly love of money of which Christ warns. I pray that you would help us to examine our hearts and to ask whether money does or does not control us, that you would help us to then repent of our love for money and evidence that repentance as Zacchaeus did by sacrificially giving to the needy in their hardship and supporting the work of your kingdom. I pray that you would teach us to do this even as we give back to you in a moment. 
training us by this regular act of worship to renounce our love for money and respond generously to the one who has been so generous to us, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Stand now to sing number 324 as our song of response. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, became us poor. Number 324. respond to their gifts, which we'll pray for the deacons collect. Father in heaven, as we just sang in that last stanza, we worship you, you who are love beyond all telling, our Savior and our King. We pray that you would make us what you would have us to be. You do that in the context of this weekly covenant renewal service where we come to have an encounter with the living God in the context of public worship with your people. You use each of the means throughout this worship to transform us more and more into the image of your son. One of those means that you use is, as you call us, not to come empty-handed, but but to uh, 
give for the sake of the poor, for the sake of, of the kingdom. We pray that you would use even that to transform us into what you would have us to be, to uh, put to death the selfish greed and love for money that lives within us, that you would show us the um, emptiness of that idol, even as we sang, read, and prayed earlier from Psalm 115, that these empty idols, those who worship them and trust in them, become like them. We pray, Father, instead that you would help us to worship you, to uh, worship Christ, your Son, to worship your Holy Spirit, and to show that uh, worshipful posture by generous giving um, this afternoon for the sake of the Hispanic Christian ministry and the work of Reverend Pennings with Mints and the uh, training up of those who would proclaim your word and serve your church in Spanish-speaking countries. We pray, Father, that you would use these gifts like you use the uh, generosity of those women in Luke chapter 8 for the support of the gospel ministry, for the um, support of the, the theological schools, our own catechism speaks that you would use these gifts for the coming of your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name.